Section 31 of The Art of Letters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by D. Randall. The Art of Letters by Robert Lind. Two English Critics, Mr. Goss. Mr. Goss and Mr. Saintsbury are the two kings of Sparta among English critics of today. They stand preeminent among those of our contemporaries who have served literature in the capacity of lawgivers during the past fifty years. I do not suggest that they are better critics than Mr. Burrell or Sir Sidney Colvin or the late Sir E.T. Cook, but none of these three was ever a professional and whole-time critic as Mr. Goss and Mr. Saintsbury are. One thinks of the latter primarily as the authors of books about books, though Mr. Goss is a poet and biographer as well, and Mr. Saintsbury, it is said, once dreamed of writing a history of wine. One might say of Mr. Goss that even in his critical work, he writes largely as a poet and biographer, while Mr. Saintsbury writes of literature as though he were writing a history of wine. Mr. Saintsbury seeks in literature, above all things, exhilarating qualities. He can read almost anything and in any language, provided it is not non-intoxicating. He has a good head, and it cannot be said that he ever allows an author to go to it. But the authors whom he has collected in his wonderful cellar unquestionably make him merry. In his books, he always seems to be pressing on us another glass of Jane Austen, or just a thimbleful of Pope, or a drop of 42 Tennyson. No other critic of literature writes with the garrulous gusto of a boon companion as Mr. Saintsbury does. In our youth, when we demand style as well as gusto, we condemn him on account of his atrocious English. As we grow older, we think of his English merely as a rather eccentric sort of coat, and we begin to recognize that geniality, such as his, is a part of critical genius. True, he is not overgenial to new authors. He regards them as he might 1960 claret. Perhaps he is right. Authors undoubtedly get mellower with age. Even great poetry is, we are told, a little crude to the taste, till it has stood for a few seasons. Mr. Goss is at once more grave and more differential in his treatment of great authors. One cannot imagine Mr. Saintsbury speaking in a hushed voice before Shakespeare himself. One can almost hear him say, Hello, Shakespeare. To Mr. Goss, however, literature is an almost sacred subject. He glows in its presence. He is more lyrical than Mr. Saintsbury, more imaginative and more eloquent. His short history of English literature is a book that fills a young head with enthusiasm. He writes as a servant of the great tradition. He is a Whig, where Mr. Saintsbury is an heretical old Jacobite. He is, however, saved from a professional earnestness by his sharp talent for portraiture. Mr. Goss's judgments may or may not last. His portraits certainly will. It is to be hoped that he will one day write his reminiscences. 
such a book would we feel sure be among the great books of portraiture in the history of english literature he has already set patmore and swinburne before us in comic reality and we can forget the grotesque figure of hans anderson sketched in a few lines though it is in two visits to denmark it may be replied that mr goss has already given us the best of his reminiscences in half a dozen books of essay and biography even so there were probably many things which it was not expedient to tell ten or twenty years ago but which might well be related for the sake of truth and entertainment today mr goss in the past has usually told the truth about authors with the gentleness of a modern dentist extracting a tooth he keeps up a steady conversation of praise while doing the damage the truth is out before you know one becomes suddenly aware that the author has ceased to be as coldly perfect as a tailor's model and is a queer-looking creature with a gap in his jaw it is possible that the author were he alive would feel furious as a child sometimes feels with the dentist none the less mr goss has done him a service the man who extracts a truth is as much to be commended as the man who extracts a tooth it is not the function of the biographer any more than it is that of a dentist to prettify his subject each is an enemy of decay a furtherer of life there is such a thing as painless biography but it is the work of quacks mr goss is one of those honest dentists who reassure you by allowing it to hurt you just a little this gift for telling the truth is no small achievement in a man of letters literature is a broom that sweeps lies out of the mine and fortunate is the man who wields it unhappily while mr goss is daring in portraiture he is the reverse in comment in comment as his writings on the war showed he will fall in with the cant of the times he can see through the cant of yesterday with a sparkle in his eyes but he is less critical of the cant of today. He is at least fond of throwing out saving clauses, as when writing of Mr. Sassoon's verse, he says, his temper is not altogether to be applauded, for such sentiments must tend to relax the effort of the struggle, yet they can hardly be reproved when conducted with so much honesty and courage. Mr. Goss again writes out of the official rather than the imaginative mind when speaking of the war poets he observes it was only proper that the earliest of all should be the poet laureate's address to england ending with the prophecy much suffering shall cleanse thee but thou through the flood shall win to salvation to beauty through blood had a writer of the age of charles the second written a verse like that mr goss's turtles would have disturbed the somnolent peace of the house of peers even if it had been written in the time of albert the good he would have rent it with the destructive dagger of a phrase as it is one is not sure that mr goss regards this appalling scrap from a bad hymnal as funny one hopes that he quoted it with malicious intention but did he was it not mr goss who early in the war glorified the blood that was being shed as a cleansing stream of condy's fluid the truth is apart from his thoughts about literature 
Mr. Goss thinks much as the leader writers tell him. He is sensitive to beauty of style and to idiosyncrasy of character, but he lacks philosophy and that tragic sense that gives the deepest sympathy. That, we fancy, is why we would rather read him on Catherine Trotter, the precursor of the blue stockings, than on any subject connected with the war. Two of the most interesting chapters in Mr. Goss's Diversions of a Man of Letters are the essay on Catherine Trotter and that on The Message of the Whartons. Here he is on ground on which there is no leader writer to take him by the hand and guide him into saying the right thing. He writes as a disinterested scholar and an entertainer. He forgets the war and is amused. How many readers are there in England who know that Catherine Trotter published in 1693 a copy of verses addressed to Mr. Bevel Higgins on the occasion of his recovery from the smallpox and that she was then 14 years of age? How many know even that she wrote a blank verse tragedy in five acts called Agnes de Sestro and had it produced at Drury Lane at the age of 16? At the age of 19, she was the friend of Congreve and was addressed by Farquhar as one of the fairest of her sex and the best judge. By the age of 25, however, she had apparently written herself out so far as the stage was concerned, and after her tragedy, The Revolution in Sweden, the theater knows her no more. Though described as the Sappho of Scotland by the Queen of Persia and by the Duke of Marlborough, as the wisest virgin I ever knew, her fame did not last even as long as her life. She married a clergyman, wrote on philosophy and religion, and lived till seventy. Her later writings, according to Mr. Goss, are so dull that merely to think of them brings tears into one's eyes. Her husband, who was a bit of a Jacobite, lost his money on account of his opinions, even though a perfect gentleman at heart, he always prayed for the king and royal family by name. Meanwhile, writes Mr. Goss, to uplift his spirits in this dreadful condition, he is discovered engaged upon a treatise on the Mosaic Deluge, which he could persuade no publisher to print. He reminds us of Dr. Primrose in The Vicar of Wakefield, and, like him, Mr. Cockburn probably had strong views on the Westonian doctrine. Altogether, the essay on Catherine Trotter is an admirable example of Mr. Goss in a playful mood. The study of Joseph and Thomas Wharton as two pioneers of Romanticism is more serious in purpose and is a scholarly attempt to discover the first symptoms of Romanticism in 18th century literature. Mr. Goss finds in The Enthusiast, written by Joseph Wharton at the age of 18, the earliest expression of full revolt against the classical attitude which had been sovereign in all European literature for nearly a century. He does not pretend that it is a good poem, but here, for the first time, we find unwaveringly emphasized and repeated what was entirely new in literature, the essence of romantic hysteria. It is in Joseph Wharton, according to Mr. Goss, that we first meet with the individualist's attitude to nature. Readers of Horace Walpole's letters, however, will remember still earlier examples of the romantic attitude to nature. 
but these were not published for many years afterwards. The other essays in the book range from the charm of Stern to the vivacity of Lady Dorothy Neville, from a eulogy of Poe to a discussion of Disraeli as a novelist. The variety, the scholarship, the portraiture of the book make it a pleasure to read. And even when Mr. Goss flatters in his portraits, his sense of truth impels him to draw the features correctly so that the facts break through the praise. The truth is, Mr. Goss is always doing his best to balance the pleasure of saying the best with the pleasure of saying the worst. His books are all the more vital because they bear the stamp of an appreciative and mildly cruel personality. End of section 31